0: Today is January sixth, two 2010, and my guest is Michael Belongi, the Otho Smith Professor of Economics at the University of Mississippi. Mike, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Uh, nice to talk to you, Russ.
0: Our topic today is the Federal Reserve. You recently wrote a provocative essay that we'll put a link up to called Reforming the Fed, What Would Real Change Look Like? And I thought we'd start about the conversation by having you talk about what the Fed does now because its range of responsibilities and the pies that it has fingers in, I think it's not uh, very well understood by the public. So what is the Fed's uh, range of activities right now? The
1: Fed has responsibilities in three broad areas. The Most attention is given to its responsibilities for monetary policy. It's receiving greater scrutiny now for its responsibilities for bank regulation and supervision, and the least attention is given to its third area of responsibility, and that's the provision of bank uh, services, the price services area, check clearing, and uh, cash distribution. Uh, so broadly speaking, those are the areas where the Fed has responsibilities and those are carried out in the 12 regional banks with oversight uh, through the Board of Governors in Washington.
0: Well, let's start by talking about those regional banks. When we read about the Fed deciding on whether to change or leave the federal funds rate unchanged, um, what do the regional banks have to do with that?
1: There is still a great deal of input uh, in policy meetings from The local offices and all you need to do is turn on your television or look at the financial press and you see uh, a variety of opinions coming from the regional bank presidents on whether the Fed might uh, stay the course with the setting of the fund trade or whether they might uh, ease, whether they might tighten, and uh, at least... To the outside world, there appears to be some difference of opinion as to whether the Fed is on track or not on track with the setting of policy.
0: But how does it work in practice?
1: Uh, How it works in practice depends on the strength of the chairman and uh, what the individual presidents wish to do. My own experience has been that uh the chairman and the board staff tend to run the show and appearances aside uh the regional bank presidents uh really do not have uh all that much input into the making of policy and there are two reasons for that one is that if a chairman cannot get his way on policy, he doesn't stand as chairman very long. This was true uh, often in the Volcker era. If you go back and read the record, there was much scrutiny of some key policy votes that if there would be more than one or two dissents at a key uh, turning point, for example... There would be ample speculation that the chairman was not in charge, and if he couldn't control the committee, that in fact it might be time for him to be replaced by a stronger chairman.
0: It's a great recipe for uh, diverse opinion, uh, conversation, consensus. It's strange.
1: It is strange. Um, and one of the uh, points I make in this essay you cite is – that when Greenspan was chairman and what I observed uh, at FOMC meetings that I attended.
0: That's Fed Open Market Committee, right?
1: Right. Um, Greenspan exercised his control in a very duplicitous way. Uh, What would happen at FOMC meetings is that each of the members of the committee, the 12 regional bank presidents and the other six governors, would take their turns going around the table summarizing uh, their idea of where the economy stood and their sense of whether the current stance of policy should be maintained uh, or perhaps a move might be made on the funds rate with Greenspan sitting at the head of the table, getting a sense of where the committee stood. So after everyone had spoken, he could get an idea of whether, for example, if he wanted to move on the funds rate, whether he would have the votes to make that move. If he didn't have the votes, it would be silly for him to say, I'd like to move the funds rate by 25 or 50 basis points. So in those occasions, he would not propose a policy change. He'd say, let's maintain the current degree of reserve restraint. The committee would vote. An announcement would be made that there was no change in policy, and they would move forward. But then what he would do, this would occur at the FOMC meeting on Tuesday.
0: So on Tuesday, there's 18 people in the room. He goes around the room. Twelve of them think we ought to stay where we are. Six of them. There might be a disagreement among those six, but clearly there's a lot of of support for doing nothing. So Greenspan just sort of blesses that by saying, "What do you think about doing nothing?" And they say, "Yeah, good idea." And that, that carries the day. Right. That's Tuesday. What happens on Thursday? Well,
1: on Friday morning, then. Oh, sorry, yeah, the Friday. board
0: meets. Just
1: the board of governors. Which is
0: how many? The twelve? No, the six. Six. The, the six members
1: of the the other six members of the Board of Governors, and the chairman.
0: And these are noted macroeconomists, monetary theorists. Who are they?
1: They're – well, they could bankers. be bankers. They could be someone uh, who's been appointed as a political payoff. They might have not have very much experience. They might have very little economics training. You can look at the people who have served on the Board of Governors over time. Their backgrounds vary. Okay. And Greenspan will come into the room with a recommendation from one or more of the reserve banks to change the discount rate. and he'll call for a vote. Do we want
0: to change the discount rate? Not the federal funds rate. Not the federal funds rate so let's let's clarify that. So the federal funds rate longtime listeners of this program know that we've talked about this a lot, but I'll just repeat it. Federal funds rate is the rate that banks charge each other for overnight loans to comply with their regulatory responsibilities with the Fed, and the Fed intervenes to affect that rate by either injecting or taking out money uh, to um, get that rate to move to the federal fund's target. Is that a decent summary? Right, but it's a competitively determined market rate. Right, It's a market rate. It's not posted. Right. But what's the discount rate then? The discount
1: desk- the discount rate is set administratively by the Fed, and it is the rate at which member banks can borrow from the Fed's discount window.
0: So it's a chance. It's the if, – if a bank is, say, its reserves are, are dropped below uh, a, a required amount, it can get extra money from other banks or the Fed itself.
1: No, it, this is the rate at which member banks can borrow from the Fed directly. For any purpose. Well, it's supposed to be used as a lender of last resort occasion when member banks are solvent but
0: temporarily illiquid. Right. illiquid. So that rate is, as you say, is posted. It's not a market rate. The Fed just sets it.
1: Right. And at the time, at the time we're talking about, it was below the federal funds rate.
0: Okay. So what would Greenspan – so Greenspan would come to the meeting and propose a change in that rate, not the one that – not the federal funds rate that everybody had been paying attention to. in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday morning said the Fed decides to hold rates constant, hold right. the federal funds rate constant. So on on Friday morning, when the six governors are meeting on their own, Greenspan proposes a change in the federal – in the discount rate.
1: Right, and to do that, he would have to have a proposal from one of the 12 Regional banks. And typically, one or more of the banks would have that, and it would come from their board of directors. So you would always have one of these in your pocket. You don't have to act on them, but you could. So he would come into the meeting. We have a proposal from Dallas or San Francisco to change the discount rate, and they would hold a vote. And what would that vote usually be? It would be in favor of changing the discount
0: rate. Unanimously?
1: Well, typically by a unanimous or one dissent. Once again, if you didn't have a big majority, the chairman's authority would be caught in, brought into question. So, so probably the, yeah, the hey, board would vote with the chairman
0: overwhelmingly. So what's – and what's the impact of that? Well, that? then uh, – and this is where it gets interesting –
1: when the discount rate would change, you would have a wider spread between the funds rate and the discount rate. So or, smaller, for,
0: or smaller, right? Depends which direction it goes.
1: Well, presumably what you wanted – you're doing this so that you can ease policy without the consent of the FOMC. Okay. Go ahead. So then for, quote, technical reasons, you would do a corresponding pass-through change in the federal funds rate. So if you moved 25 basis points on the discount rate, you would instruct the desk that for technical reasons, they should move the funds rate in the same direction by the same amount. So what you've done is subvert the will of the FOMC by this trick of changing the discount rate
0: so, let me, having this technical pass through on the funds rate, so I think I understand it. So, you're saying Greenspan wants to lower the federal funds rate, but he doesn't have the votes. Right. So instead, he goes to the smaller group, which he has a lot of of um, uh, sway over compared to right. the regional banks, which are more the federal regional ba- Federal Reserve regional banks tend to have some strong-willed uh, chairs at their head, people at their heads, presidents, et cetera. So, he lowers the discount rate. And then says to the federal funds desk, well, we can't have this big gap, so you'll want to lower that too and act accordingly? Exactly. This is not well known. No, it's not. It should be. This is horrifying. It should be. And the the horrifying thing to me
1: as a staff economist who's going to FOMC meetings with a regional bank president is that none of these presidents ever spoke up. And it got to the
0: point – So it was a sham, basically. They didn't – and they just – it was a charade that they went along with.
1: Right. There were two bank presidents – it's not important which ones – who were very strong allies of Greenspan. They would typically go along with anything that he wanted. But this had gone on for a number of years. There was one FOMC meeting where – as someone who had had a trick played on him several times, (laughs) these guys had listened to Greenspan speak at the meeting, and they were basically saying, now, under what conditions would one possibly expect someone who might, what not, you know, (laughs) they were trying to draw Greenspan out of the bushes
0: (laughs) to say, you know, are are we going to be Sandbagged again, yeah sandbagged <laughs> again, and greenspan
1: you know smiled and double talked and everything else, and sure enough, after they voted for no change, there was another change in the discount rate, and the funds rate was lowered, and nobody said anything, nobody went to the press, nobody did anything
0: and, uh, this and you went were on there for a period
1: of about three years
0: you were there you're now safely back at the University of Mississippi, and you're um you're making these observations that are um, kind of provocative. Let let's um, let me understand the the information content of this particular um, ruse. The press always reports on the federal funds target that comes out of the meeting on Tuesday that we're talking about, where the regional banks, the the 18 people in the room make the vote, and and you say that. Greenspan always made sure that the recommendation came out of that meeting that was widely you know, supported by the people in the room. Then you're saying on Friday, he would sometimes or often or occasionally, change the federal funds rate in this surreptitious way uh, through a technical, administrative, logistical, whatever you want to call it, uh, maneuver. Did the is that new Friday morning federal funds rate? Is that in the data?
1: <laughs> no, all you have to do is go back and look at the record where occasions happened where there was no change at the funds rate at a Tuesday meeting, and there was a discount rate change with a pass-through on the funds rate on the Friday, by recollection is that there's about a half dozen, maybe more, occasions where this happened over about a three-year period between about 89 and 91, something like that.
0: So it's not particularly uh, sinister in the sense that it was covered up. It just wasn't – I mean, who knew, who reported on, who observed this change on Friday morning? Did the world know about it, or is it just sort of eventually happened? Oh, no. Everybody
1: knew about it. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, anybody who
0: was – So the main – the punchline of this is that Greenspan was running the show in a very um, – aut- autocratic too strong, but he was setting the, the funds rate, not, not the committee, not the influence of the regional chairs, right? That's the bottom line. Sure. So this leads you in your essay to suggest that maybe we don't need these regional banks or we don't need as many since they certainly don't play a role. At least then they didn't or, they, or maybe they do now, but they don't play much of a role in setting monetary policy.
1: Well, no, it begs the question of what you want them to do. In another part of the essay, I point out that when Volcker was chairman, he vetoed the choices of two local boards of directors in their choices of who was to be the local bank president. He vetoed the choice of Jerry Jordan to be president at Atlanta, and he vetoed the choice of Lee Hoskins to be president at St. Louis. Now, why do, why do you
0: think he did that?
1: Well, both of them were well-known monetarists, and both of them had well-established records of what they believed in. Um, in the case of Lee Hoskins at St. Louis, it was well-reported in the press that um he did He wanted the strongest dissenting voice to be silenced. St. Louis had had a an almost three decade long record of publishing research that disagreed with uh, official positions. He wanted that research department shut down. Volker did.: Yeah. Arthur Burns had tried it previously. <laughs> In a much more sinister way, um, you know, you, you don't want dissenting voices, uh, and one way to do it is to appoint a president who's going to do something about the research department that's giving you trouble. Uh, Jerry Jordan had a long monetarist record. He had been a director of research briefly at St. Louis. He had a long track record of monetarist tendencies, and you could make the case that Volcker didn't want people like that as regional bank presidents. It's a little strange. It begs the question, either you want people as regional bank presidents who are going to have strong independent voices, who are free to publish research that is in fact able to question official points of view, or if they're not, well, you know, get rid of them.
0: I I am I'm smiling because uh it on the surface it seems like a very strange assessment of of Volcker's motivation and you said he didn't want regional heads of the banks who were monetarists. But of course most of us think of Volcker as a monetarist. Surely Volcker's whole his historical legacy is that he wrung inflation out of the system in the early nineteen eighties, late seventies. And um, he did that by recognizing the role of money, the money supply in, in creating inflation. And to bring down inflation, being a good monetarist, he lowered the money supply or raised the, the federal funds rate to, to get that to happen through open market operations. And so why wouldn't he want someone with his same philosophy on at the regional banks?
1: Well, there's an interesting alternative to that.
0: Yeah, let's hear um,
1: it. A guy named Alton Gilbert, longtime member of the St. Louis staff, had a paper censored by Volcker around nineteen eighty or eighty one, I forget the exact date now, that subsequently was published in the St. Louis Review around nineteen eighty five. Um, just before I left, I encouraged him to publish it, just have it on the on the historical record. But he used what were confidential data from the New York Fed's trading desk to demonstrate that at the time the Fed was allegedly doing monetary targeting, it was doing anything but that. And he was set to give this paper at Carl Bruner's Constance Monetary Conference when he received a call ordering him to destroy all Uh copies of the paper. And the the argument that Volcker gave was a very interesting one. The paper only included means and variances of the data. But the argument was someone could possibly reconstruct the individual trades from a table of means and variances. And on that basis, the paper had to be destroyed. So two people walk into a room... And the average height is six feet tall, and presumably you can from that construct uh, <laughs> you know the heights of the two individuals
0: yeah that that um that expressed reason for the necessary confidentiality of the data is not really credible so what was the what was the worry when you say that the Fed in that paper was demonstrated to be quote doing anything but monetary what you call it um Targeting monetary aggregates? What were they doing? They were still fooling around with interest rates. And why was that – What was why was anything controversial? Didn't they say that's what they were doing?
1: Well, remember, allegedly between – when their famous October 6, 1979 Saturday emergency meeting was held, presumably they were adopting a policy of targeting the aggregates. And they presumably – continued that policy until October of 82 when the misbehaving aggregates caused them to switch to something else. But whether it was fears about losing credibility or doing something else, this paper by uh, Alton Gilbert uh, was feared as being something destructive to them, and they censored it.
0: It was critical, presumably, of what they'd done. Yeah. I hate to open up a can of worms, but I want to return to an issue i raised with many uh, guests on this program because it's an ongoing source of confusion. I'm, I'm less confused about it than I used to be, but uh, I'll try one more time with you, Mike. When I was in graduate school, we were told the Fed controlled the money supply. As time passed, the Fed became a focuser on the federal funds rate uh, as a, quote, way of targeting the money supply. When I interviewed Milton Friedman – in 2006, he, his take on this was, well, the Fed says they are targeting interest rates, but what they really do is they target the aggregates. They try to keep a constant growth in the money supply, and if they do that, the economy does well, and if they don't, it doesn't do so well. What's your take on that?
1: Um, I have a short little paper in the December 2007 issue of Public Choice uh, which tries to get at this. And it's an old argument that people like Alan Meltzer have made, Carl Brunner, and Friedman for that matter. Uh, and it gets at the source of the confusion of how the Fed falls into mistakes like the one uh, that I think they made most recently. The Fed has a single tool, open market operations, where it injects or takes out reserves from the banking system. With that, it can try to hit an intermediate target. That intermediate target can be an interest rate, like the federal funds rate, or the quantity of money. Now the question then becomes, what information do you glean from that intermediate target? For most of its history, the intermediate target the Fed has pursued has been an interest rate. And that's precisely how they get into trouble. And that's what's explained in this little public choice essay.
0: Explain. Why do they get in trouble? Well, because
1: as a market-determined price, it can change because of changes in the supply of reserves or the demand for reserves. Independently of the Fed's open market operations. That's right. And the trouble with the Fed is they believe every change in the federal funds rate is is because of their actions. And they don't make allowances that the price of reserves, the federal funds rate, might change because of the change in the public's demand for uh, loans, which will in turn affect – the demand for bank reserves. Consider what happens if we go into an economic downturn. The demand for loans will fall, and in turn, the demand for bank reserves will fall because reserves are an input to bank lending. The Fed will see a decline in the federal funds rate. They will mistakenly assume that they have been overly expansionary in their provision of reserves to the banking system. Right. So what they'll do is tighten up. They'll give an instruction to the desk. We've made a mistake. We've been too accommodative, so let's drain reserves from the banking system precisely at the time when the economy is weakening. Exacerbating the change. Exactly. So, for example, if you look at the summer of 2008, everybody, if you go back and look at things, was saying the Fed's been really easy. Look how low the funds rate was. I had sent a little op-ed to the Wall Street Journal that didn't get accepted, pointing out that the five-year growth rate of bank reserves was slightly negative at that point. The Fed had been restrictive for a five-year period. It was no wonder the economy was on the verge of entering a recession. They had been strangling monetary policy for a long period of time. But if you look at the funds rate, the signal was the Fed had been easy. And, of course, if you do this analysis in reverse, you get the same thing during uh an upturn. When the demand for loans rises, the demand for reserves rises. That pushes the funds rate up. If the Fed looks at like that. Uh, they think that they have been uh, overly uh, restrictive,
0: and they start to loosen. Yeah.
1: And they start to lose money, in. precisely as the economy is expanding, and they add fuel to the fire on the upside.
0: So, what you're saying is, which is really, um, Scott Sumner made a similar observation here of, uh, recently about that period of whether it was tight or loose, and he makes the point that that uh, we often mistakenly look at the uh, funds rate as a, as a Measure of monetary policy's tightness or looseness, but what's shocking about what you're saying is that you're saying the Fed itself gets confused and confuses its proxy, the interest rate, for the target it really wants to be manipulating, which is the money supply.
1: Exactly. There is a Scott and I have shared some uh, emails over the last couple of months, and I just sent him a link something. And this shows what a regional bank can do if it focuses on its mission and it gets involved in the policy process. In 1976, the Journal of Monetary Economics had a series of essays in honor of Homer Jones, who was the director of research at St. Louis between 1957 and 71. And he's the guy who introduced so many things that the modern Federal Reserve accepts as given, such as hiring economists to write scientific articles and holding conferences and publishing data, Uh, the the modern Fed owes really everything to the vision that Homer Jones started to put in place at St. Louis. But one of the essays, it was written by Jim Meggs, who did his PhD at Chicago and worked At St. Louis while he was doing his dissertation, he traces out a number of things in the policy record and things that the St. Louis president of 1959, 60, and 61 was trying to introduce ways that the Fed was operating, mistakes that they were making then, confusing being tight for being loose and vice versa. And if you read what was going on 50 years ago, you'll see that there's not much difference now from what was going on back then. It's really remarkable. Uh, These essays uh, are available on the St. Louis Fed website. They've archived these essays.
0: Yeah, we'll put a link up to it.
1: But it's fascinating reading both for how little things have changed in the way the Fed does policy and is still subject to making the same mistakes and interpreting the stance of policy and what a reserve bank can do. If it understands what its mission really is—not operating as an academic research department trying to impress its professional colleagues, but focusing on making a difference in the monetary policy process—yeah,
0: one of the themes in your essay, which uh, we're, we're touching on now, which is interesting, is that—and most people, I think, don't realize this—the Feds and I have many friends who work at them, and they're wonderful people. And um, may they may they may, may they prosper in many different ways. But the, the different regional Feds have extensive staffs of economists who write on all kinds of things that have, they're like mini-economics departments. That and What you're suggesting is that they should write on monetary policy. Interesting, isn't it? It's a strange, novel idea. That would be, you'd think, consistent with the Fed's mission, but they don't do that much. They do some of it, of course, but they write on all kinds of fascinating and interesting academic subjects. It's a strange thing.
1: It has become strange, and You can attribute it to many things. You have pressure from interest groups. You have pressure from boards of directors. You have the vision of individual bank presidents. And you also have pressure from the Board of Governors. This is just one person's opinion, but it's been clear to me that the Board of Governors would like nothing better than to have the 12 regional banks work on ice fishing, but to do anything except get involved in monetary policy and leave oh, yeah. that function exclusively to the chairman and his staff.
0: And, of course, people, economists who like to write about ice fishing are like it that, that they're pushed that way. So uh, that's a small group, but there, there are other areas the Fed writes on that That there's a bureaucratic uh, capture here I d- problem that the people who are working at the Fed enjoy the freedom to write on what they want. They don't want to just write on monetary policy or assessing the Fed's uh, story. So they kind of like being told that they can do whatever they want. Uh, and, of course, that serves both interests of the Fed staff and the, the Board of Governors. It's a little bit about power, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, let's turn to uh, some of your recommendations for what a, a, a makeover for the Fed. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about making the Fed more, quote, accountable, which is a, um interesting word, which we'll I'm sure we'll turn to. But Talk about what you suggest. Some of your let's talk about your recommendations in the essay for how the Fed uh, might be improved. So one of them is to shrink the regional banks since they're not doing the role of helping uh, critique and measure and assess the Fed's monetary policy. They're either cheerleading or doing something else with taxpayer money. So they would. You think we should have fewer of those? What else? Uh, what else would you recommend? What else do you think would make the Fed more effective?
1: Well. Th- for those who haven't uh, perhaps read the essay or, or or won't, the reason for shrinking the number of districts from 12 to 5 is motivated by a couple of things. The price services function, the check clearing, cash distribution, and other things the Fed does in that area, has uh, the volume of services has declined enormously. It's already reduced the number of branch offices, There's no reason nowadays to have 12 offices to do the volume of services that used to be done. In the same vein, the Fed's supervisory and regulatory function, it's been advocated by Volcker and I think by Greenspan as well, although I'm not certain of that. If you're going to provide a stable and sound payments mechanism, the Fed only really needs to supervise the 100 largest holding companies.
0: How many does it supervise now?
1: Well, it, it supervises uh, Federal Reserve member banks. That's a lot of institutions. And a lot of them are small. They don't have an integral role in the payment system. You don't need the Fed to be involved in as many banks in the supervisory and regulatory process as it's involved now. So you could reduce, you could focus the Fed's regulatory function on a small number of large institutions to keep the payment system sound. That would argue further for the reduction in the number of Fed offices. And then when it comes to monetary policy, if in fact you're going to keep bank presidents as voting members of the FOMC. Some bank presidents now get a vote only every third year. Well, you know, at least to me, it's it's kind of hard to take things all that seriously if you've got a vote every third year. But if I'm voting every meeting, I might take my function a little bit more seriously.
0: So if
1: you had permanent voting members... Uh, which the five bank presidents would be under this revised structure. You might have people uh, who would be uh, more serious, and you might think about more carefully about who those five presidents would be in this kind of reform structure.
0: Of course, the political economy, that's pretty weird, because whatever incentive the chair would have to pick those regional banks now, uh, heads carefully, they If there are five permanent guys who vote every every meeting, they're going to really try to co-opt those folks. So it's hard to imagine we'd get five independent-thinking, challenging heads of those regional banks if they could uh, vote every time.
1: Well, then it begs the question of who appoints them. Currently, they're appointed by the boards of directors of those regional banks – Because under the current structure, the chairman has the option to veto the choices. I'd prefer to see them appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Yeah. As the members of the Board of Governors are, to take that veto power away from the chairman. Uh, There's just been far too much meddling, and I'm not sure that the regional bank presidents um, have done The best job in uh, making appointments of regional bank presidents,
0: but But, you know it's that's a great idea. But it's a um, go to going to a more philosophical issue. It seems to me that we, as a body politic, it's comforting to voters to think that there's a maestro at the Fed. So Alan Greenspan is Times Man of the Year, I think, in two thousand and one. He's not quite as popular today or respected as he was then. Not at all. And now we have the, the the new maestro. You know, Okay, he lost his touch. Greenspan did, but we got Bernanke now. And he understands. Boy, he saved us. He pulled us back from the brink. He's the guy. The idea that there might be five independent, strong-willed, thoughtful, intelligent folks who could disagree about the direction of Fed policy – would really pull the curtain back from this, uh, this charade that, that the Fed ha- is led by this all-seeing wizard of monetary policy. And the fact is it's much harder to do. than It's not like uh, they can sit around and figure out, quote, the right federal funds rate. It's not always clear. But that, we don't want to let that secret out. And it kind of takes the fun out of being the chair. So the political pressure to keep that, the current system But that plum job must be immense. Do you agree with that analysis?
1: Well, you know, one of the problems, and and this is something else I address in the essay, is that things have been made a mess by Congress's insistence on a dual mandate for the Fed, which is something we know is impossible from basic economic theory.
0: Yeah, talk about that.
1: Um, Pinbergen... Gave us the mathematical result more than seventy years ago. The Fed has one instrument, one lever, to control the quantity of reserves. And with one instrument, you can at most pursue one independent objective: price and yet, stability. Congress tells the Fed to pursue full employment, or you can couch it in terms of real output and price stability. So you've got built into the system an impossible mandate for monetary policy. And what I have found terribly troubling is you've had mostly the bank presidents running around embracing this dual mandate like little schoolgirls. We have this dual mandate. We have this dual mandate. Instead of saying to Congress, we can't do this, Tell us to pursue something that we can achieve, which is price stability.
0: I think most of them are schoolboys, but um,
1: well, they, the way aren't... they've been
0: behaving,
1: uh, the only thing they're missing is little party dresses. I mean, it, it's it's been embarrassing
0: the way that they've done this. Well, they want to keep their jobs, well, right? But there's... that's why they cheerlead. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is their um, their social mission of community development and other. Uh, distractions potentially depending on one's perspective from, the, from their goals uh, their, or their main mission. But that's politically um, what they have to do if they want to stay in power and in office.
1: Well, I'm not sure as a regional bank president your job is going to be all that threatened if you go out and give a bunch of speeches that say our mandate is not achievable. I don't know that any regional bank president has ever lost his job uh, for saying this.
0: I don't think they've said it very often.
1: <laughs> it's, well, it's not, I mean, it's a testable I mean, hypothesis. It is. Um, you know, they, they would at least serve one term before they would get fired, and I don't think that any of those guys is going to be in, in danger of being unemployable uh, if, if they would lose a job. It just strikes me as being irresponsible. To go out and promote the idea that this mandate is something that you embrace when it can't be achieved, it it it's really distressing that all of these guys are supposed to be, the, you know, the smartest guys in the room.
0: Well, but before we talk any more about that, I, you want to say something about the Taylor rule? And the Taylor rule is supposed to tell the is supposed to have two inputs: the change in the size of the economy. GDP and the change in inflation, those are the two goals. The two inputs become the two goals become the two inputs, and there's a feedback loop then, ideally, between the uh, federal funds rate and then the, the two goals. So the Fed, John Taylor argues that when times are going well, that is, when the Fed's doing its job well, they can handle these two things. They just need to sort of keep the economy on an even keel. How did your perspective? Uh, Affect your. What's your assessment of
1: that? I I am not. Um, I don't buy any of that. First of all, we need to decide which Taylor rule we're talking about. I read an interesting post on Brad the Long site recently, where we have John Taylor's rule or uh, what's been done by. Glenn Rudebush, and others, where it's a completely different Taylor rule. And the two uh, give wildly different answers. And we can add to this mess uh, the Taylor rule as interpreted by the people at the St. Louis Fed. They plot it on page 10, I think it is, of monetary trends and show what it implies for different assumptions about the Fed's target value for the inflation rate. What I make of all of this, we know how quickly the economics profession discarded the monetary aggregates in the early 80s when they so-called started to misbehave.
0: You're talking about M1, M2, the way we, exactly we used to do monetary policy.
1: Right. If the economics profession applied the same impatience that they applied to the monetary aggregates, if they applied that impatience to the Taylor Rule, we'd have stopped talking about it a long time ago. Why they have been so attached to the Taylor Rule, I don't understand. If you look at the plot in monetary trends, for example... It's a
0: publication. You have to believe
1: that the Fed was targeting very, very, very high inflation rates in the recent past. Does anyone believe that? No. No. And yet, everybody just takes the Taylor Rule as given. If you look at this recent essay by Brad DeLong, we can't even agree what the hell the Taylor Rule is, and yet people are attached to it. But let me give you one more uh, take on this idea of trying to achieve two goals, and this is where I'm worried that we might be headed, and I think Scott Sumner has said something similar to this. Nominal GDP targeting uh, was popular in the early 90s, and Bob Perry was president of the San Francisco Fed at the time, and he wanted to give his take on this.
0: And by nominal, just to summarize, we, we did a long podcast with Scott on this, but the I mean, podcast well, we focused a lot on this, but the ideas would be that if, if GDP measured in current dollars uh, was rising fast, you'd want to be more restrictive. If, it's go- if it starts to fall, you'd want to be more loose, right? You'd want to change the federal funds rate accordingly. That would be the – and that's what you look at to try and decide whether policy has been loose or tight.
1: Well, it gets at the notion of looking at prices and real output simultaneously. Correct. I'm deviating a little bit from your theme, but I just want to bring this up. Yeah, go ahead. So Bob Perry wanted to talk about nominal GDP targeting, and at the time he thought a 6% target would
0: make sense. Uh, this was 6% at- growth in nominal GDP? Yes. Okay, because you'd have sort of an inflation rate of 3, real output grow at 3, so nominal growth would, would be 6. exactly.
1: And this, this would be uh, good times. The, the occasion was a small off. meeting of Fed economists uh, engaged in uh, macro research, and the San Francisco Fed was hosting this meeting. He was giving luncheon remarks, and Milton Friedman drove up or drove over for the day to attend the luncheon. So when Perry finished, Friedman raised his hand and said, "This is all nice, Bob. I like your remarks." But tell me what you do if you're at your target for nominal GDP of six percent, but you have seven percent on prices and minus one on real.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's awkward.
1: And the conversation
0: deteriorated from there. So that's stagflation, right? So you have a if if you find yourself in a world where you've got high level of inflation and uh, the economy's uh, negative growing at negative one, you're in a recession. So you wouldn't want to say, well, everything's hunky-dory, right? That 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 was Friedman's point.
1: Exactly. Now, I don't think it takes a great deal of imagination to envision a situation where a year from now – We're going to be all there, baby. All of the Fed stimulus yeah. that's been built up, prices start to take off. And for other reasons, the housing overhang and everything else, yeah. the real economy is still not in very good shape. What does the Fed do? Do they tighten to nip – the inflationary pressures, or do they continue to loosen to deal with the deteriorating real economy?
0: And of course, that's that conundrum is part of the maybe the main reason why the Fed has been given two targets. Congress doesn't want the Fed to focus on price stability in that in that world; they want them to get those people back to work, right? Fine. Do you agree? Tell me what to do. Yeah. Well, ignore one. You know, it's like you're right; you can't solve them both at once. So, I think what I think what most people have in mind, not that I want to defend this, but what most people have in mind is, well, you have two goals. Sometimes one's more important than the other, so focus on the important one when it's the important one.
1: And have we ever heard the, the dynamic inconsistency of optimal plans? Yeah. We have other policy levers, which are changes in tax rates and all kinds of other things to deal with the real economy. The only thing that monetary policy can deal with is price stability. So let's get on with the business of that and leave other things to other
0: people. So that's your recommendation. We're getting short on time, and I want to make sure we get to some of the important points of that. First question would be, how would you get there? Given that you've said it's not the Taylor rule, what would be your mechanism if the Fed did have the one goal of price stability, which I agree with you is the appropriate role for a central bank? How should it achieve that goal?
1: Well, I hate to sound terribly old-fashioned, but first of all, I'd have the Fed get back to its business of constructing responsible monetary data so that we would have a notion of what the hell the money supply is actually doing, which it doesn't have any clue about now.
0: Yeah, why? I was shocked to read that because I'm not an expert on this area. So you're, you indict the Fed on failing to collect accurate data on money. Isn't that what the Fed does – In great profusion, don't they publish all kinds of data on money? What's wrong with what they're doing?
1: They are publishing data on money, none of which is scientifically valid. It's all meaningless. The data it publishes comply with no economic or statistical standards that the BLS or anyone would recognize as being coherent with economic or statistical theory. They are meaningless data.
0: My heart sinks. Why is that?
1: You'd have to ask someone at the Fed. No,
0: no, no. What's wrong with them? They publish M1. They publish M2. They, why is it that scientific? Well, what, or, and one, why is it that scientific and statistically reliable? And two, what should they be collecting?
1: Well, uh, apart from problems complicated by sweeps, programs, and other things, the basic idea is when you begin to pay interest on deposits – uh which is what the feds
0: are they still doing that?
1: Well, I mean, I mean you and I have checking accounts oh, that, that kind pay of interest. interest. Okay. When this banking system does. Go ahead. Right. Um things should not be added together uh as accounting sums. Things should be weighted differently just as components of the CPI are given different weights. We don't simply add up dollars for dollars
0: in the CPI. Yeah, it's not P1 plus P2 plus P3 divided by three. You don't want to P- weight sardine prices equally with, say, heavy equipment. Right. And what happened
1: within the Board of Governors' own special studies section in the late 70s, work was done to figure out how you would create expenditure share weights is what it amounts to. Uh for currency checkable deposits that didn't pay interest checkable deposits that did pay interest as well as where you would draw the dividing lines it's not clear that m1 is an appropriate dividing line it might be m1 plus some other things so the the work Some work has been done. The St. Louis Fed has been working on an update that has been stalled. I don't know whether they're ever going to update it again. But the work really ought to be going on at the Board of Governors to create a measure of the money supply that, by analogy, would be similar to the Consumer Price Index, a weighted measure of money.
0: I don't think Uh, that much of the Consumer Price Index, so that's a little bit of a – not as exciting as I might hope.
1: Well, I'm just kind of speaking in casual terms without getting into technical detail. A weighted measure of the money supply where the components would be weighted by expenditure shares, expenditures on monetary services. Um, There's been a fair amount of work done, not only for the U.S., but other countries. uh, Creating these measures, a lot of it, by academics trying to do it on their own. Some central banks have done some work with this. And what you find out when you look at these data is that they don't behave anything like the official accounting sum data that the central banks still routinely publish. And they give you uh, fantastically different inferences about testable hypotheses you might worry about different inferences about the future course of inflation, different relationships between money and the cycle, all of the types of things that monetary economists would be worried about. The Fed, however, although they, in fact, reconstructed their index of industrial production in this same manner, they have done nothing with money. Now, whether it's because they want to hide the truth or whether because there's some other things, we can only ask them.
0: Um, And there is no them exactly. It's a whole, of course, large, complicated, emergent process by which Fed policy gets enacted, not just of the federal funds rate but these kind of issues of how numbers get gathered. So if we had a good monetary series, um, what would be the goal or rule that you would advocate for – what a chair of the Fed would do with those data. What, what would be the target or the mechanism for implementing the target?
1: It would be uh, something like uh, people have – a small group of people at least have tried to do or advocate for a long time. Keeping the supply of reserves on a fairly slow and stable path – to hit an intermediate target for an appropriate measure of money that would keep the inflation rate low and stable so that people can make long-term planning decisions. That's the only thing that monetary policy ever should have purported to do. It can't uh influence real variables in the long run. Um we can't fine-tune the cycle. We don't have any empirical evidence or any theory that supports the idea that monetary policy can do much more than that. What it does now, by pretending that it can do other things, is introduce uncertainty into the world. And it seems to me that's a bad thing.
0: Couldn't agree with you more. Um And, of course, some people argue, and I'm sympathetic to this, increasingly sympathetic, is that because of the politics of the Fed – and by politics, I don't mean the standard view of politics. I don't mean the Congress's or president's role. I'm talking about the whole panoply of stuff that you've outlined, the interests of the Fed players themselves. Um, It seems like it's kind of a dysfunctional institution. We ought to get rid of it and have um, private money.
1: I'm not willing to go that far, because it seems to me that imposes a lot of information costs that um, are not easily dismissed. I would prefer a situation in which the chairman of the Fed, instead of being elected man of the year and then hounded for comments on this, that, and everything, would be pretty much the most boring person in Washington, simply because of the way that policy is pursued and implemented, uh, there's really nothing to get excited about.
0: It seems like you ought to be – I think we, I think I may have made this joke before, but it seems like you ought to put him in the basement of a, of a building and, um, with a really good um, stereo system and some food and, I don't know, a, a great large-screen television and some other amenities and not let him come out for a year or four for his whole term. Keep him down there. Uh, don't let him talk to the press. It's kind of like the Bill Belichick school of uh, monetary policy, right? Don't give you know the the Fed chair gets praised for his crypticness, uh, and then there's the science of reading between the lines. So in this view, you just put him in the basement and you don't even let him be cryptic, right? Just let him be boring.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the, the counterpoint to that, and the worst thing is when you have someone like Greenspan running out and and saying things about irrational exuberance, and all of a sudden now the Fed's responsible for making a prediction about equity markets when, first of all, how in the hell does he know what the right value for the Dow is? And if he knows the right value for the Dow, what is the Fed supposed to do about it? And now you've got a new monetary policy target and all of these other ancillary issues that have absolutely nothing to do with anything I mean, he should have been fired after that
0: speech. So you don't think there should be three targets for the Fed? Uh, full no. employment, price <laughs> stability, and popping asset bubbles or whatever. When's
1: the last time anybody – well, first of all, define a bubble. Yeah. Tell me the last time anyone has been able to predict one in advance. And then tell me if you're going to start trying to deflate bubbles in advance – what are the costs to all of the other targets that you presumably have? Nobody seems to talk about these things, very.
0: You just hold those constant, you know.:
1: <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. right. You know And now we have an exchange rate target. Now we're up to four.. Yeah. With, right, we got one policy lever.
0: We've got to keep the dollar stable, inflation stable, full employment, and no asset exuberance of the wrong kind. The right kind, okay, but not too much. Um, let's let's talk about the issue that we hear a lot in the um, in the in the news, which is the transparency and accountability um, argument. And a lot of people say the Fed quote needs to be more accountable. I, I certainly think it needs to be more accountable in telling us what it's doing. Like right now, it has about a trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities on its books, and they're not very transparent or accountable about that. I find that really bizarre that they've launched into this um, whole new area uh, in the name of price stability, but of course there's a – and mortgage rates stability, which is another target by the way. You got to keep mortgage rates stable and have everybody be able to buy a house who who would like to buy one. So so that's just another mission for the Fed and it's politically attractive for Congress. But uh, what should be – the political influence on the Fed you – know, the Fed chair is called independent, but, of course, he's a political animal. He does respond to political forces. So what should be the Fed's accountability uh, and what should be the incentives facing the chair of the Fed? What would you like to see?
1: Well, you, it's hard to hold him accountable right now when you have a dual mandate that's impossible. So the first thing you need to reconcile is by giving the Fed a mandate that's, in fact, achievable. The the clearest example of this was when the Central Bank of New Zealand was reformed more than a decade ago, and you said, here's a goal, you have price stability, and if you don't achieve that, we're going to reduce your salary first, and if you don't tell us why you missed your target... And after we've reduced your salary, we're going to remove you from office.
0: That's a great. There's incentives there. Definitely yep. incentives there. But you've got a clear mandate. You can't let and the Fed be the to- gatherer of the price information in that world. But you've got to keep that separate after after you've made those rules. But
1: So it, it seems to me the first thing you need to do is set a mandate that makes sense. So you decide whether it's going to be the price level or a rate of change for the price level that's very specific. And – uh what people don't recognize is that independence and accountability are at opposite ends of a continuum the only way that the fed should be independent is that once you give it a mandate the fed's free to pursue that mandate any way that it chooses so that if the fed's responsible for keeping the inflation rate between say 0 and 2% it can pursue that By targeting the funds rate, following a Taylor rule, targeting the money supply, or consulting a Ouija board. I don't care what it is, so long as they achieve the result. If they fail to achieve the result, then penalties are put in place. That's what accountability means. There's accountability for achieving results. Now, in terms of transparency, there's all kinds of talk that the Fed has become more transparent I think that's mostly nonsense. Although they now announce immediately after each meeting what the new Fed funds rate target is, that's a change that occurred after another censored Fed paper, but that's a topic for another day. Um, I have no idea how they're arriving at anything that they do. There's talk that the Fed follows a Taylor rule well we don't know that
0: right that's a we, we you know, have no idea about any of
1: their decisions
0: well i felt that particularly strongly after the bear stearns episode i thought that was an extraordinary uh, abrogation of democracy and responsibility that that the chair of the fed decided to guarantee at the time 32 it became 29 billion dollars of bear stearns mortgage assets so that j p morgan would find them an attractive acquisition and like where's the accountability who who Why were they allowed to do that? Sure. It's bizarre. But but, but
1: we also don't know what weight they attach attach to full employment versus price stability at any moment in time. We have no idea at what point they might switch from giving more weight to one objective versus the other. None of this is transparent
0: at all. So – And there's no ex post justification even of it in in many cases. Certainly not ex ante, not at the time, but but not ex post either. No.
1: So the notion that the Fed's become more transparent, I think, is something that's uh, maybe written about in the academic literature, but as a practical matter, I don't see much transparency at all. And this is something that would come forth if, in fact, you had a legitimate, sensible mandate that was backed up by an explicit statement of how you were going to achieve it. So if, for example, you were given a mandate of price stability and you announced that we were going to achieve it by having 2% reserve growth with an intermediate target for this variable and you were providing data that the public could monitor to see whether you were on path... That would be transparency, but right now, I have no idea what's going
0: on. Could be a Ouija board could be fine chicken chicken entrails It's hard to know it's a good point uh i I really think there's an enormous uh thirst i'm just gonna i'm gonna close with a really depressing observation, then you can give your take on it and uh get the last word There's this thirst I mentioned earlier that that people want the comfort of thinking there's somebody at the top of the economy running it. They know the president can't do it. He doesn't know enough about economics. So there's this master specialist, the expert, the the chair of the Fed. And he has all these goals. You're right. He has this enormous, diverse set of goals, which include anything that's on people's minds, right? It's whatever people are nervous about. The Fed is tasked somehow, impossibly, as you point out, we're trying to fix it. So this is absurd. So why does it persist? Well, it persists because of the thirst for it. Uh, and, and an ignorance, of course, about what the Fed's actually capable of. We're trying to address that ignorance, I hope, in this podcast uh, in other ways. But it persists for that reason and, and then because of the, the inherent advantages that accrue to economists within the Fed system and politicians from, it, from keeping this, this bizarre fantasy about what the Fed can do. Um, they have a natural incentive to to keep that myth going. They don't want to strip out their power. It's an enormous Attractive mission creep to think of the Fed as, quote, steering the economy. And as a result, we get really lousy economic policy every once in a while. Sometimes it's pretty good, but then every once in a while, we have a disastrous misstep uh, that uh, incredibly uh, it, it, we don't learn anything from it. It's just, oh, well, we've got to do it better next time. We just have to now we've got to adjust the models a little bit and tweak it. As you say, there's no transparency about and, and holding the feet to the fire about what they actually did. Whether it was right or wrong, or who should be fired or pay a price for it, it's just well, you know, it was complicated, and we had to do the best we could then. And but without any data on what they actually did, how how would you ever have any accountability? So um, that's it's for those who've listened to the program in the past, it's a bootlegger and Baptist theory of of the Fed. It says basically uh, we like the idea that the Fed can steer the economy. And the people at the top uh, get to reap the benefits from that personally by uh, indulging us in that fantasy. So that's a, a bleak picture. You, you want to comment on that, and we'll we'll call it a day. Well, I,
1: it, it's my impression that
0: it, whether
1: it's doctors or scientists or economists. All of those professions and individuals in those professions get into trouble when you oversell what you can do. And I sometimes tell students the worst thing you want to do when you take your first job is overpromise what you can do. And I think the Fed has gotten in trouble now mostly from wounds that are self-inflicted. And it would be in its own self-interest to retrench and say, this is what you can reasonably expect from us and try to refine the level of competence that it can actually deliver. Uh, It has to refine what it can do, for example, in bank regulation that it can really uh, provide to the public so that it has faith, again, in the regulatory function. It has to get back to things in monetary policy that the Fed can really deliver. But so long as it tries to provide this Wizard of Oz role where it's an authority on everything uh, under the sun... It can help but disappoint, and when you've undermined the public trust the way that it has, and now you've got uh, severe damage to your credibility, uh, I think the path is
0: downward rather than back up. So, um, But you talk – I said I'd give you the last word. I still will, but I, I've got to interject something. You said it needs to. It's self-interest. There's no it there, right? If you're going to be the next chair of the Fed – Whether it's Ben Bernanke trying to get reconfirmed or whoever the next chair of the Fed's going to be, that person has no incentive to say, you know, hey, let's face the facts. I need a much smaller organization doing a much smaller set of tasks, and uh, we'll all be better off for it. That is just unless we pull back the curtain, that is not going to happen.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I went to the dentist yesterday. And as usual, you know, you had Time magazines from the Roosevelt administration in the waiting room. Um, but I was paging through uh, last year's a year in review, and they had uh, a short memorial for Tony Snow that I stumbled across. And whoever wrote... Uh, the little memorial for him said that he was so refreshing as the White House spokesman because he would say, I don't know. Yeah. When the White House press corps would ans- ask him a question. And, you know, ultimately, when I talked about these regional bank presidents and talked about some other things, you can't write legislation that will make an institution function. All of these things are idiosyncratic to the individuals who take office. So that's right, you can't make a Paul Volcker or an Alan Greenspan behave in a certain way. But you can perhaps look for a certain type of person who's gonna say, I've seen the damage that's been done And when Congress calls on me to do certain things, or when the public wants certain things, I'm going to take this occasion to say that's not our responsibility. Or I'm going to answer this question honestly and simply say, I don't know. You know, maybe that's dreaming.
0: Well, for me, you know, Ben Bernanke was a first rate academic economist. And now he's a first rate bureaucrat, he's really good. At going getting along and i 'm sure if you had asked him a year ago, not a year ago, five years ago, if he would find himself doing what he 's doing now, he just said you 're crazy those are the, those are horrible th- I would never do those things, but he faces a different set of incentives, and I think unless we change through political pressure what those incentives are i don't i don't think it matters who 's in the job
1: uh, could be um, you know it's um as you know I've seen some things from the inside where individuals have made a difference,
0: sure,
1: and I've seen what happened when you know bad people have come into play. I've seen when heroic people have done heroic things um I don't wanna be in a position as I get older of being a nihilist, <laughs> so I keep hoping um. But, you know, at the margins, we can always change incentives a little bit and uh, hope that the right people will be put in place where you can look at the function of what you're supposed to do and try to focus on that. Uh,
0: Who knows? Who knows? My guest today has been Michael Balanchi of the University of Mississippi. Michael, thank you so much for being part of EconTalk.
1: Glad to talk to you, Russ.